building three times. And I'm like, this mad woman, you know? And I come in and sit down, and I'm going, and I'm just all over the place. And he looks at me, and he says, if you don't shut up, I can't help you. <laughs> so I did. And we're talking, and he's saying to me, Mary, Mary, your spirit is dying. You need to re... You need to find your spirit. He said, you're used up. And he said to me, I said, what do I do? And he said, you need to look back. You need to go back into your childhood. And you know what I said to him? I don't want to go back in that shit. And I looked around to see who said that. Because I didn't even know that's how I felt about it. This is 20 plus years in Al-Anon. And all of a sudden, he's saying to me, you got to go back. And I'm saying that because I would have described my childhood as just fine and dandy. My, you know, I told you, we had fun, we drank, blah, 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 blah. And so I said, well, how do I do that? And he said, I don't know, start thinking about it. So I did what I did what I only know how to do. I came home and I read an Al-Anon book, which was Survival to Recovery. And I looked in the book and I said, you know, I identify with every one of those questions about adult children. Every one of them, I said, yes, yes, yes. Do you feel inadequate? Yes. Do you feel good? Yes, yes, yes. Then I read the book. I said, I'm not in here. <laughs> it wasn't like my life. So I went back to him and I said, we started to talk and he said to me, I said, why don't I know this? Why, why, why didn't I know I felt like this? And he said, well, in the fellowships of AA and Al-Anon, they would call it denial. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. You know, here I am 20 years in the program and you're telling me about denial. This time he said, go back to that book. I went back to this book and I did what you tell me to do and you tell everyone to do, I tell people to do when they hear a speaker or they read something, you know what it is? Don't compare, identify. And this time I looked for the feelings. And when I did that, I underlined almost every word in that book. I was in that book. I was all over that book. And so what I began at that time was my second recovery in Al-Anon. And I was able to look at all of what I'd grown up with and the whole syndrome of alcoholism that was probably in my family for who knows how long. And I was able to finally see it. And I cried with him and I, I came to terms with, I didn't think I was a good enough wife. I didn't think I was a good enough mother. I didn't think I'd done this well. I didn't think I'd done that well. And he would look at me and you know what he would say? Can you love yourself, Mary? Can you love yourself? <clears throat> After my time with him and starting to learn to love myself, and I came to term with, terms with many things I'd buried. I had lost a child during those years. I'd never grieved that child. I was too busy. Moving on, moving on. Get by it, get by it. I did all my grieving for who knows how long that I'd been carrying that sadness around in me. And I had a wonderful sense of recovery. What I decided to do, because it seemed like a good idea at the time, was I thought we should now move to another house, because it's good when you're in that kind of condition to move to another place and pack up your whole life and move somewhere else. My geographical cure, maybe. And in doing that, I needed to, I, this it, unbelievable thing came over me where I had to just kind of divest myself of everything. I was throwing things out. I felt like I just wanted to get rid of it all. Part of it's probably middle age, I don't know. <laughs> but it happened to me, I don't fully understand it. But I threw everything out. I, I took my family up in the attic because, you know, when the boys cleaned their rooms, they would just move it to the attic. It never really went out. And so I've got everybody up there, and we're, I'm throwing everything out. I threw out everything I ever owned. I threw out every award, every plaque, every everything. It's out. It's gone. And they're not where I am. So they're saying, you can't throw that out. Leo's, there's a bowling ball Leo's got up there, which he used when he was at the very end of his drinking years. When he used to work the third shift, he'd come home and he would go bowling in the morning so he could drink. Because, you know, you can't have to drink when you're bowling, even if it's 8 a.m. So that was what he had that bowling ball for. And he hadn't used it in 20 years. And I said, get rid of it. He, he said, you're not throwing out my bowling ball. And I said, 
yeah, get rid of it. He goes, no, we're not. It was like, that was the line that was drawn. We're moving okay, but we're taking the bowling ball. So we cart this bowling ball out to this new place where we live. And um, the kids come over one day and they say, let's go bowling. No one said, let's go bowling in 20 years in my house, right? And he looks at me and he says, aha, my bowling ball. So, of course, he pulls out his bowling ball and put his fingers in and they had gotten a little too fat for the bowling ball. So I said, aha. So, but the bowling ball is kind of like our culminating story. But I, I needed to move. I needed light. I just needed light. I needed to be where light was. I needed to have light pouring in. I needed, I needed to get in touch with, with my God in another way. We moved into this house. I quit every organization I was in, including Al-Anon. I did, the only things I did was go to church, go to my job, and be quiet. And I sat quietly in the light of that house, and I allowed myself to heal. And you know, you gave me that. You gave me the right to do what I needed to do for my own sanity and self-preservation. And after a couple of years, maybe a year and a half, you know, I always read my literature. I might even speak at something, but I wasn't going to my regular group. I was just, I couldn't. I was just too tired. I could hardly get home and do anything. These little character things, you know, those same defects, wanting to be in control, wanting to take charge, started to pop up again. And I recognized it. And I said, you have to get back to the program. And I found my little group, which I now belong to, the Hamburg Courage to Change group. And I'm happy to be in that group. And I feel like my life has settled down. It took almost three years for me to get through that time, that healing time. But at least I didn't rush it this time. At least I didn't try to just keep going. At least I heard the message of the program to love myself, to care for myself. You know, when I was a, when I was a, a little girl, you had to, um, my mother would iron my father's white shirts. You're all gonna not relate to this because you're so damn young. <laughs> but what, we had ringer washers. My mother still had a ringer washer and you'd put these shirts through the ringer and then you'd, you'd put them, you'd dry them out on the line and you'd bring them in and then you'd sprinkle them and then you'd roll them up into these little sausage things and you'd put them in a wicker basket with a vinyl liner that had either strawberries or cherries on it and you'd cover them up and I don't know what the heck they did in there, told jokes, I don't know. <laughs> And you'd leave them in there till just the right time, and then you'd take them out and you'd iron them. When you took those shirts out, those shirts were so wrinkled, you couldn't believe you could ever, ever get those wrinkles out. And I think my life was like that before this program, like one of those wrinkly shirts. And I was always trying to just use my own power, my own pressure to get the wrinkles out. I came to you, and you said, Mary, there's another way. I said, what is it? Take step three. I said, what's that? Buy an iron. <laughs> so I did. I made that contact. I bought the iron. I connected with a God of my understanding. Now I tried to iron those shirts. It was better. And then you'd say to me, Mary, try step 10. I said, what's that? Plug it in. <laughs> and plug it in every day. Every day, plug yourself into the source of energy and power in your life. And you know, those shirts would just smooth themselves out like nothing you'd ever seen. When I'm not doing that, my life isn't what it is and what it could be. Because what I come to know is a higher power that cares for me, that loves me, that is around me. I don't understand it. I don't care if I ever understand it. I don't care if I put a label on it. It's just this incredible source of energy, power, and grace that makes my life different. And I know when I'm connected to it, everything is better. I envision it like this. I'm in a rowboat on a pond, 
and I'm rowing and rowing. The God of my understanding is in the back. He's operating the tiller, setting the direction. We're going fine. We're going all around the pond. And then me being me, I say, excuse me, God, could I take the tiller? And the God of my understanding always says, sure. So I get up, I take the tiller, God takes my place, and we just kind of go in circles. And you know why that is? Because God don't row. <laughs> so if I remember, all I have to do is keep moving, keep rowing, and I let God set that direction for my life, everything goes a lot better. I read something else just recently. I loved it. I lo you know, do you notice how the pages in our, our books change every year? Those daily readers, they put new pages in there when you're sleeping in the night. Somebody puts new pages in there, and you read them, and you go, oh, this, I never read this one before. I've been reading it for 20 years. Look, that's never been there. <laughs> I read one from, uh, from the Hope for Today, and it said, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Do not go there alone. <laughs> that was me. You know, that was me. Don't go there alone. I I'm not going to a meeting. I want to stay home tonight and think. It's like having a meeting with a fool. We come together in these rooms and we bring all that we are and all that we were and we're broken and we're hurting. And I don't know what happens in these rooms, but that power of energy and grace comes to these rooms and we talk to each other and we touch each other and we love each other and we get healed. And I am so, so grateful for that. I'm in a place in my career where I'm going to end it. It's a huge life change. I'm retiring at the end of this year. I can't believe it. It's been an enormous decision. And I just decided I want to be doing something else. But, you know, I have to have my plan. So I have learned I don't tell God my plan. I just tell God I need a plan. And uh, I found uh, something I loved as a child that I loved to paint. That was my first my first big gift in the program was a John Nagy Learn to Draw set. And I, I never really had time in my high school life to take art classes because I was always taking college entrance classes, you know. And so I never really did much. I'd go to some little adult class here or there. And when we moved out to this new house, I just happened to be, I was driving around looking for something, some place where I could buy things to put on the walls. And I came into this studio and adults were painting in there. And I said to this woman, well, can anybody come here? And she said, yeah. I said, you don't have to have any training? No. You just come. If you come, you pay. If you don't, you don't. Whatever. I was there the next night. In the last four years, I've been painting. And I found some very special place that's been deep inside of me that I haven't allowed to be out in years. And the day I handed in my letter of resignation to my superintendent, I also sent a photo of one of my works to a show. My friend said, send it. I've never shown my paintings that anywhere. Just my family, they think I'm, they think I'm good because they're required to. <laughs> so I send this in, and I'm really sending it on a lark, and uh, I send it, and I forget about it. And uh, my resignation goes through the board, so now I'm officially doing it. And two days later, I get a letter that my painting has been accepted in a national women's show. And uh, I felt very validated. It was like God said, yes, it's okay. Go in that direction. It's good. Tonight is the reception, the opening reception. I've told every single person I know, if you want to come, come up there to celebrate that with me. And I just think at every stage of our lives, if we stay open to whatever the direction of our higher power is, he's there to guide us. What a message of hope. What a message of hope. Life doesn't end. It just keeps opening up and opening up. If we let it, and if we show up, if we keep coming back, and we work it because we're worth it. I love all of you very much. Thank you.
Elnan story. Mary, Mary's story. So first I want to know how I get one of these. <laughs> <laughs> these little groups that travel with you, and who, that's good, that's good. Hi everybody, my name's Mary Gregory, and I'm a very grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. And I'm so happy um, and uh, overwhelmed to, to be here this weekend. I'm very emotional for reasons I can't tell you, but hey, what the heck, you just go with it, right? After so many years, you just accept whatever it is, and you say that's what it's meant to be. But I am just so thrilled that Mary has invited me this weekend, and she has been so gracious to Leo, my husband, who's out there, and myself and her, with her husband, and it's just been such a pleasure. So I'm really, uh, this is the place I'm supposed to be today and this morning, and um, I'm grateful to this program for allowing that. This week I was reading something um, in a, a morning reading that I do along with my regular, I read from Hope for Today, I read from Courage to Change, I do some other stuff, I do a little praying and you know, then I go off to work. And in uh, this other reading that I was doing it said, hope is, there was a little phrase from Emily Dickinson, the poet, hope is the, the feathered thing that perches in your heart. And I thought, you know, when I came here the whole message is hope. And actually, I can feel that fluttering right now. I don't know if it's palpitations or it's the feathery thing. But, <laughs> but you know, I hope when you leave this convention or this room or anything you go to today, you feel the hope of this program. I feel it every single moment of my life. I live in the joy of what this program and the AA program has brought to our lives and our family. And I am grateful to it with, from the core of my my being that you were here for us and you're still here for us and Pete's here for you and how does it work I don't know let me tell you let me just start out by telling you a little story about myself this is what back when I was about six years old when I was six years old I had a uh, my my father's sister and her family lived on the shores of the Erie Canal in Tonawanda New York and we spent a lot of time on the shores of the Erie Canal, where everyone drank beer, ate clamshells, threw them into the canal. <laughs> and, you know, that was what you did on Sundays. And I had a cousin, who was not much older than I was, who I absolutely adored. When everybody else was telling me to get the heck out of the way, I was pain in the neck, he was saying I could be on his wiffle ball team. So I loved him. And I followed him, and whatever he did, I did. And I was staying with them one summer, we were across the street in a little uh, community playground and he and I were playing in the sand and we were making sandcastles and we were building sandcastles and this playground bully because there's always one I married him later on but there he was and he was running through the playground he was running right through our sandcastles and crashing them up every time we tried to build it there he was running through it so my cousin said to me we're gonna make a plan well you know I was saluting anything he said I was gonna do so he said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make a sand castle. We're going to let him run through. We're going to make another sand castle. We're going to let him run through. We'll make the third sand castle. We're both going to reach out. You grab one leg. I grab one leg. We're going to bring him down. Oh, my God. I love this plant. So, so here we are. We're building the sand castle. And, you know, I'm this little girl. I'm looking out the side of my, my, my uh, view. And here he comes. He's running through. And he runs through. So I'm watching him, he's making a circle around the playground, we build it up again, and he's coming, and I'm itching, you know, I'm ready, and he's coming around, and I reach out, and I grab his leg, and I can see my cousin saying, not yet, but I've got his leg, and I didn't let go, and I, he pulled me around that whole playground, holding onto his leg, and if I didn't tell you one more thing about myself today, you would know why I'm in this fellowship because I was always out too early and I didn't know how to let go. <laughs> you know, that was a defining characteristic in my life. When I was uh, also a very young child, three, my mother had a, um, I was, I was uh, about the fourth one down in the family. My mother had her children in groups. First she had the first two, then she had the, the next two, then there were two more. And I was in the lower end of the group, but, but just um, when I was about three years old, she had a child who was a Down syndrome child. And she brought him home from the hospital, and um, he wasn't expected to live very long, and in fact he didn't. 
But while he was home, my mother was the kind of woman who brought the family together and loved that child. I remember very little of, about that because at three you don't remember very much, but I do know that I was three and I was happy and my mother had given me this nickname, Mimsy, which told you she thought I was a little whimsical. <laughs> and so what I knew at that time is during a very, very sad time in our household, at three years old, I could still make people happy. And so if I didn't tell you anything else about myself, except for that other story, that now I learned that my job in life was to make everybody feel better. So, you know, I was six years old. I was already a fixer. <laughs> I was always somebody who couldn't let go. I was, I was going to be in kind of control of the happiness of everybody. And so do you think I came to this fellowship by chance? I don't think so. Fifteen years later, when I was a 16-year-old girl, I fell in love with this red-headed, freckled-faced Irish kid, Irish-Polish. I won't tell your line on that, because that's your line, but I do like it. He's, he's the gray-haired guy sitting out there today. <laughs> in fact, I told him, he was. I said, Leo, go to that panel on the um, old-timer women in AA, and if they're older than we are, stay, and if they're not, get out. And he went, and you know what? They were all younger than we were, so we are really getting old. It's <laughs> can't believe this. It, my hair should be like Mary's, but, you know, it's not. <laughs> so at 15, I fell in love with this kid. And as everybody does in high school, I don't know if they still do it, because now they have pagers and instant messaging machines, but we used to write notes. That's how long ago that was. There was pencil and paper. Oh, my God. And so, you know, we were in love and we'd write notes to each other all day long and we'd call each other up on the phone at night and then we'd, you know, day after day. And I saved all of those notes. And they were tied in a little red ribbon and they were packed away in a box. And sometime into our marriage, I found those notes. And I opened them up and I looked at them and you know what was in every one of those notes? Leo, I love you. Do you have to go out drinking with the boys this Friday? Leo, could we do something on the weekend except maybe you going out and drinking? Leo, little cartoons of Leo drinking. I mean, it was all of that. Wouldn't you think I would have noticed? In Leo's yearbook, his best friend, who was the best man at our wedding, Leo, he didn't write Leo, he had another name for him, but he said, never stop drinking. I didn't notice, because what I knew was we were a family that drank. You know, we drank when the sun came up in our family. When the sun went down, we drank on Sundays. We ate the clams, I told you. I mean, that was what we did in my family. So Leo wasn't so unusual. He fit right in when he met our family. you think I would have noticed. But you know what I did know? All Leo needed, now this could be group participation. All Leo needed was the love of a good woman. I knew you knew that. And you know, I was a good woman. Oh my God, I was a good woman. I always did everything I was supposed to do. I always studied in school. I got good marks. I was in the honor society. I played the violin. Oh my God, I was so good. You wanted to puke. But Leo, Leo was not. I was honor society. Leo was not. I was in the orchestra, Leo was not. I was good, Leo was not. Boy, did I like him. Leo was my walk on the wild side. I was Beethoven, Leo was rock and roll. And so, had I not met someone like Leo, I would have married someone just like Leo because I was primed and ready for that kind of a relationship. I could make them happy, I could fix them, and I would not let go until it was done. And so at 15 or 16 years old, we started our relationship. Now I tried to get rid of Leo many times during that relationship when I started to come to. Actually, I was going down the aisle, I broke our, I broke our, our uh, I used, we used to break up regularly in high school. And, and then when we got married, uh, or got engaged, we broke that up, and then I married him because I figured, what the heck, there was nothing else to do, you know. So I'm going down the aisle with my father. He's, we're lining up in the back to go down to be married, and here I am, and I go, uh, 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 and my father, 
turned to look at me to say, is everything all right? And I said, yep, I'm fine, fine. And that became, began my life of fine because that was me, put on the mask, little Susie Sunshine, go out into the world, how are you, Mary? Fine. Leo, Leo and the kids, oh, we're fine. Everybody's fine. Yeah, our household's fine. We're falling apart. Alcoholism is playing a huge role in our lives. I'm a maniac. I'm screaming at my kids, carrying on. Fine. Yeah, we're fine. Then I came to you at some point, and you explained to me what fine meant. <laughs> I'm not going to share that today, but I'll bet you you could do it. So Leo and I embarked on this life of fine, and as his alcoholism progressed, I couldn't control what I thought I could control. I couldn't fix what I thought I could fix. I felt like a failure. It was my job to do that. My mother had told me. I didn't know what to do anymore, so what I did is I became melancholy. I was so melancholy. I wasn't sad. I was melancholy. And I would stand at the window, I remember washing the dishes when I wasn't screaming at my children, I was washing the dishes and I'd be just feeling so sad and I'd say to myself, what happened to that girl I used to be? Where did she go? And I didn't know. I didn't know. I just knew I couldn't sleep at night, I knew I had a tightness in the pit of my stomach all the time, I just knew I would, my kids would do something naughty and I'd start to spank them and I'd have to run out of the room because I was afraid I couldn't stop. In fact, one of those children, my oldest son, um, I thought, I, I just had so much, we hate, he, we, by the time I came into this program, he was spitting at me and I was saying I hate you to him. And that's where that relationship was after five years of his little life. So I took him, um, I, I called the local children's hospital near us and I said, I have a child who I, I, I'm just having terrible problems with and he does this and he does that and, and he's hyperactive and on and on and on. It wasn't the fact that he was getting screamed at or whacked or whatever all the time, right? Couldn't see that. So they sent me a form and they said, fill out the form, send it in and we'll make an appointment. So they sent me the form and there were all these questions that I had to answer, and I just kept putting no, 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 and then there was a space to fill in your own comments while I filled the whole page up. And I put it in an envelope, and I put it in the, put it in a little rack because I wasn't quite ready to deal with it yet. And then some, I, then I, we came to Al-Anon. We came into the program. My husband came into AA. I came into Al-Anon, and life started to change. It was like, like my husband was sick, and someone gave me a pill. And he got better. And that's what happened with the relationship with my son. I came to you, you gave me a pill, he got better. What an amazing thing. And I found that paper sometime later and I realized, I realized where we were. Because all of, the, all of my anxiety, all of my fear, all of my anger, all of my frustration at a husband who I couldn't count on to come home for dinner or home any time, when he was there, he was angry. It wasn't a pretty scene. I took out on the next layer, the next rung down. They got all my frustration and anger. And so coming to you, my very, very first gift was the renewal of that relationship with that little boy who was five years old and who is now, how old is he, Leo? 33. I never remember that. Because <laughs> I just don't do numbers. <laughs> That was a gift you gave me when I came into this program. One day, I was, uh, my sister, my, my sister closest to me was going, had gone back to school. She married and she was, uh, she had a couple of kids and she decided she was going to be, go back to school. She had been a nurse's aide. She said, what the heck, I'm going to get money for this. I'm doing what nurses do anyway and went back to school and got her degree. And on that particular day, um, Leo was supposed to come home, we were going to go to this party, and of course it was one of those days when he didn't come home and didn't go to the party. And I didn't, at that time, I didn't have the gift you gave me, which was to have life anyway. And so I sat and waited. And when Leo came home, much later, the next morning, I said, you know, I think you have a problem. And, and uh, he said, you know, I think I do. I said, 
Well, why don't you call AA? I don't know what I knew about AA, nothing. I just came, just came out of my mouth. And he said, that's a good idea. Why don't you call them? <laughs> so I did. I went out in the kitchen. I dialed AA. And they said, I said, I have this friend who has a husband who has a problem drinking. And they laughed. And they said to me, honey, when he calls, we can help him. And I hung up the phone, and for three more years, Leo drank. What I didn't know is that Leo didn't know anything about that conversation, except that I called AA, and then I never talked about his drinking anymore. And what I did during that time, sort of on my own, was I found ways to survive. I went back to work, I started to make a life for myself, I started to take some of the focus off what was he, he was doing, and started to sort of get myself back together again. At the end of about three years, Leo, uh, out of the blue, came home uh, in a blackout, I guess, one night, and uh, he said, I said, I, th I really think you need to, to take care of this problem. Even though I didn't know what it was and I was in denial, I'd see anything about Al-Anon or AA or alcoholism, and I'd slam the book shut or I'd close the, turn the television channel or whatever, whatever. I didn't want to look at it either. It was too big. I didn't want to know what name it was. I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know how to control it. So it was better just not to look at it, right? Denial is a protection for so long and something that's too big. And he said, I said to him, well, why don't you call A? And, and this time he said, he said, I said to him, no, if you want to call AA, you call AA. And he did. I had the number <laughs> ready. I, he, I gave him the number and I walked out of the room and, and that was the beginning of Leo's sobriety in our new life. He stayed sober about 30 days on his own. I didn't know what he was going through physically. I had no idea about that. I just knew he wasn't drinking and that was good enough for me. Later I found out the struggle physically and mentally he was going through, but I didn't know it at the time. He didn't go to rehab, but after 30 days, he'd lost some weight. He was starting to feel good, and, and he said to me, let's go down and see Tom and Terry, our friends. Tom was his buddy in high school who had written that little thing in the yearbook and who was at our wedding and um, who we were the best people in their wedding three weeks later. Well, I didn't want to go see Tom because when Tom came around and Leo was drinking, it was, it was bad really bad. Leo was always bad, but when Tom came, it was really bad. So I just didn't feel like running off there. But I had heard Tom had gotten sober. And um, we hadn't seen him in five years because people told him that he shouldn't hang around wet places, and Leo was a wet place. <laughs> so all of a sudden, we're getting in the car, and we're driving down to Cowdersport, Pennsylvania, to see Tom and Terry. And Tom, we look at him, and uh, they look pretty good. Tom takes Leo off to, to uh, someplace in, in Pennsylvania for his first AA meeting, and little Teresa, his little Sicilian wife, who stands about this high, takes me into the kitchen and says, you know, there's a program for you, too. And I said, well, what program would I need? <laughs> I am the good one, as you remember. I'm the good one. She said, well, it's called Al-Anon. And you know why you need it? Because you have character defects too. <laughs> really, Teresa? What would they be? <laughs> Thanks so much. I really wanted to run home and go to Al-Anon where they were going to point out all my defects of character. I was so busy being the good one, I couldn't give that up. So we came home from that weekend, and hand in hand, we walked down to the little church at the corner of our street where Al-Anon, or AA met in the big room upstairs, and Al-Anon met in this tiny little closet-type room downstairs. We, we did grow in our self-esteem enough to get out of there after a while, but not at first. And that was at my first Al-Anon meeting, and I walked in that night, and a newcomer who happened to be someone who'd gone to school with my older brother, I knew her. I knew her. And you know, they looked good, they looked healthy. They, they were dressed pretty well, I mean, they were nice. I don't know what the heck I was expecting, but you know, I was pretty sure I wasn't, it wasn't gonna be for me, the good one, the nun-like person. And uh, that was the beginning of my Ellen and life. They took me in and they told me I couldn't, I hadn't caused it. What a revelation. I thought I'd caused it. I thought that I wasn't a good enough wife. I thought I wasn't, I didn't cook well enough. That's what he always told me. 
You know, I didn't balance the budget well enough. I didn't, I thought I caused it. If I could only find a good thing that I had to do, that little switch, I could be different and then he wouldn't drink. You know, if he loved me, he wouldn't drink. They told me that had nothing to do with it. He had an illness that I had nothing to do with. Oh my God, I love that. Took this weight, put it over here. And then they told me I didn't have to cure it. And that was good because I had spent half my life trying to cure it. Figure it out. Find the right thing to do. What a relief that night. I never left those meetings, that meeting again. Did I have character defects? Well, no. <laughs> the first one, I was at my first meeting, and a Jim F. was the speaker. And he talked about being a martyr. And while he was speaking, lights were going on all around him, like marquee lights like this, and the word martyr was going like this. I swear it was. And he's speaking in this word martyr, and I'm going, I'm not a martyr, I'm not a martyr, my stomach's clenching, why is that, why is that lighting up? Why is, there, why is there a sign behind him saying martyr, martyr, martyr? Well, you know, my moments of truth come that way. And there I was realizing that my a primary character defect was being a martyr. Oh, poor me, we're fine. Yes, we're fine, fine, fine. Inside, I'm saying, why is this happening to me? What did I ever do wrong to have this happen to me? I learned martyrdom at my mother's feet. She was really good at it. I learned it. That was the first character defect I ever had. And in fact, here's how I visualize how well I played the martyr. I, I used to think that, um, well, let me tell you this, because I know you've never thought about these things before. I would think when Leo was drinking, I needed to get the heck out of that relationship. But I was too good and too nice to either be angry or to leave. Because in my family, you didn't do that. And so what I would picture is either someone would come with Leo, run off with them, I would be the best woman at their wedding. Or that some mysterious accident would befall Leo. It wouldn't have anything to do with me, of course. It would just sort of happen out there, and then, you know, that would be it. He'd be over. And so my, one of my favorite fantasies, you've never had them, I know, so, <laughs> was that here would be Leo. He'd be laying out in his coffin after having this mysterious thing happen to him to just take him out of my life. And here he'd be in his coffin, and I'd be standing next to him in my dull gray blazer with my dull gray skirt and my hanging hair and I would be wearing my badges, which I envisioned as charms. I had a garbage can charm, I had a checkbook charm, I had a uh, garage charm, and I had, well, I had a sex charm too, which I'll tell you in a minute, because I know you're gonna wanna know about that. But I'd be wearing my charms, and Leo would be laying out in his coffin and the neighbors and friends would come by and they'd look at Leo and you know what they'd say? Isn't she a good woman? <laughs> and that's where I got all my self-esteem because I didn't do anything to create self-esteem in any other way. So I know you want to know about the sex term. So during those days when Leo was drinking and I was a young woman, I was in my 20s, my body was working good. I even think I liked sex. Here he'd come home and sometimes he wasn't in such a beautiful shape, you know, and I was really mad at him a lot of the time. But, you know, I was reporting for duty just like I did when I was six. And I was, you know, doing my wifely thing. And so I would envision myself during this sex encounter, I would envision myself so I could get through it as Miss Kitty Dance Hall Chick. And so while Miss Kitty was in the bed doing the deed, and, ha and actually having a pretty good time doing it, Sister Mary Gregory would rise up. <laughs> and she would float there, float there, float there, until the deed was done, at which time she would resume her natural position inside. we did pretty well at that for a number of years, you know? That was, that was good. So my charm for that was a cowboy boot with a spur on it. 
And uh, actually, a couple of years ago, Leo and I were out in, in uh, were invited to speak out in the Canadian Rockies in Edmonton. And Leo bought me a little silver boot charm, which I now wear frequently. He's probably wishing those days were back. So, <laughs> so here I am. I come to you. I'm a mess. I don't know it. You share with me all of my character defects. And you also share with me wonderful ways of changing my life. Now, because I'm so good and I'm so responsible and I do all the things I'm supposed to do, I don't know how to, I don't know how to change that. I don't know. You, you tell me, Mary, change your life. Do something. And I say, what? I don't even know what I like anymore. Because you know, when your focus is always on what's that other person doing? Where is he? What time is he coming home? What are we going to do? What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? You stop living your own life. You stop driving in cars. You start getting anxious. You start getting paranoid. You don't go out of your house. You start wearing pigtails down to here and, you know, you're not looking so great. And they're saying, Mary, do something. What? Well, knit an afghan. <laughs> so big. You know, I needed instant gratification. I would make a pot holder. I would say, oh, and what a good pot holder it is. You know, pat myself on the back, go on to the next thing. They'd say, say, set some goals for yourself. So I'd say, okay, I'm not going to go to work. I'm going to stay in bed all day and read. I will not be responsible. I won't. So I'm reading along. It's 10 o'clock. I'm thinking, geez, I'm getting really bored sitting here in the bed with this book. But I made it till noon. I said, that's good. That's good. You weren't responsible today. I took uh, such baby steps. I'd stopped driving. I mean, I drove to work down the street. Sometimes I didn't remember how I got there because I was in a blackout. I'd arrive at school and I'd say, oh, how did, how did I get here? I don't recall that. Alcohol, alcoholics have their blackouts. We have ours. And I'd arrive there and, and, and so I'd stopped really driving anywhere. I had to have Leo drive me down to the 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 Motor Vehicle Bureau to renew my license. Is that sad? So one of my first goals in the program was to get in my car and go someplace. I started by driving down into Buffalo, into the city where I didn't know I was going. I'd be trembling, thinking, I don't know where the hell I am. But you know, just keep driving the car. Then I drove to Boston to see my friend. By the end of the first year, I had taken the students I was teaching to, to, to Paris. Once you gave me those slogans, once you gave me a way of life, I really used those. My first favorite slogan was live and let live. And I worked it like live and let live. And that meant to me that it was my life. I, you told me I had a life. It was for me. It was my life. It was about me. I could do with it whatever I wanted to do. And the other person in my relationship had the right to have his life too. And if he chose to sleep it away, that was because he slept as much as he drank in early sobriety. I didn't know that was part of his healing. I just thought there he was. Now first he drank, now he sleeps. And I'd be sitting at the end of the bed waiting for life to start. Now, oh, I wish he'd wake up so life could happen. Maybe pretty soon he'll wake up and we can do something. And they said to me, well, why don't you do something? And so here's how I learned detachment and the slogan, live and let live. You know, I'd be vacuuming going, live and let live, live and let live, live and let live. But it gave me the energy to then, you know, say, well, what do I want to do? Well, it's Sunday morning. What do I want to do? Leo's sleeping. Well, what would you do if Leo were dead? Funny how that reoccurs. <laughs> and, uh, and so I would say, if Leo wasn't here, because this is the only way I could, I could work detachment, was if Leo weren't here, I would take a picnic basket, put the kids in the car, we go to the zoo. So, okay, do it. But it was like in those early days, in the, in the drinking days and in the early days, it was like there were these invisible friends that tied me to him. And if he was happy, I was happy. If he went this way, I went that way. If he went this way, I went that way. If he was up, I was up. If he was down, I was down. Everything revolved around that. And I had no idea how to sever that. And you gave me all of the tools through the slogans and the steps to snip those invisible threads and to say, have life. Go live life. And I remember being at my very first assembly, New York North Assembly meeting, wearing my Paris t-shirt. Oh my God, I 
had wanted to go to, I taught French for God's sakes. I hadn't even gone to France because, not because of Leo, but because of all of that stuff that had happened in my life kept me from walking out, living in fear. I lived in fear. A speaker today I identified with him so much that he used to plan trips. Were you in that panel this morning? He planned his trips for six months and then he never took them. That was me. I could envision all the wonderful things, but I didn't go there because I couldn't get by the fear and the inadequacy and, the, and whatever all those things were. So remarkably, I started to have life. And I started to live it like there was, it wasn't a rehearsal. It wasn't a dress rehearsal. It was my life. And you brought me into service. I was in service in nine, at nine months in the program. Somebody said, come with us to this thing. I didn't have a clue what it was I was going to do. I was going to speak because I had so much to offer. And, you know, they dragged me into speaking early. They dragged Leo into speaking early. Thank God for that because, you know what, where we couldn't say anything to each other, we couldn't tell each other anything because we had a difficult, hostile relationship a lot of the time. We'd stand at the podium and we'd spill everything out we were thinking and feeling. And he heard me and I heard him from the podium. You know, I could tell you anything. I couldn't tell him those same things. You helped me move from the meetings to the relationship. About five years into the program, Leo and I took one look at each other and said, what the heck are we still doing together? We'd both gotten well in the programs. I'd gotten well finally enough to say, I need something else. Leo still had tremendous anger at five years in his program. And I was finally healthy enough to say, I'm not gonna live with that anymore. And so I asked Leo to leave. And he, he did, but he came home every day <laughs> to visit. And thank God he had a sponsor who said, who said to him, Leo, you don't solve your marriage problems in the fellowship. AA is for not drinking, and Alan is for whatever they do. But he said, we're not marriage counselors in the fellowship. You go get counseling, professional help. And at that point, we were both healthy enough to be able to do that. It was hard. I really didn't want it to succeed. I wanted to finally be out of that, but that wasn't God's plan. And sometimes God wants you in a relationship, and sometimes he doesn't want the relationship. And you know what? I don't question that anymore. For us, that was what... what was the, was the way it went. It, he knew we would find a way to be healthy. In other places, I think he says, you need to get out to be healthy. It's just my experience that it worked this way for us. So we both got into service. And I'll tell you what, if you really want to stop being good, and you really want to stop thinking you're, you're good, the good one, don't get into service. Your friends in this program will tell you Gently and lovingly, every character defect you need to still work on. It's a wonderful thing. It's a growing thing in service when you start to give of yourself and share. So I had the privilege and honor of serving my group, my, my area, being a delegate. Leo was the delegate for AA at the same time. What an incredible experience that was. The mail at our house was unbelievable. I think the postman wanted to, you know, he, I think he had a broken back by the time our, our terms of office were over. And Leo, who is 10 times more emotional than I, the last thing we did at, um, at our World Service Conferences, they had a time where you could visit Stepping Stones, which is where Bill and Lois lived. And Leo said, we don't need to lionize these people. We're making them something they're not. They're just people. I'm not going there, blah, blah, blah. So he gets the bus with me. We get off at Stepping Stones. He cries for the whole time we're walking around the house. <laughs> Tremendously moving experience. And to be able to share that together as trusted servants in this fellowship is overwhelming. So we go along in the program. We build good lives. I have a wonderful job. Leo has a good job. Our kids are growing up. We forced them to go to Alateen. They tried to change Alateen, but, you know, they went. They, they, they went for a couple of years, and they vented a lot of their anger. Um, I always wish they would have stayed longer, but they didn't. 
but they're pretty good young men today and they sure know where the fellowship is and they sure know what our participation is if they ever need it. I don't know that they've ever heard my story. I was just thinking that they've heard Leo's story, but I don't think they've ever heard my story. Because you know what? <laughs> so maybe I'll let them hear it someday or they'll, they'll be interested. I'm too busy still being fine in their eyes, right? So we're going along in the program. I, I'm doing well. I decide to go back to school. I, I get another degree and um, I'm moving up in my career and everything is just great. Um, and I've spent my life in service and I've grown and I've just had the privilege and honor of that. And, and I decided I'm going to change jobs. And so I change jobs and I go into this area of my career, which is very demanding. And um, I'm, I'm feeling like I fell into a black hole. It's, it's just so different and I'm, I'm learning so much and it's a lot. And, and my boss puts me on this big state project, high visibility state project. And so I'm in this job for about three months. I'm thinking, what the heck did I do? And I get a call that my, my sister, my sibling that I grew up with, was killed in a plane crash with her husband. And my world just stopped. My world just stopped. And uh, a week later, my mother is driving her car and she crashes it into a phone pole and she rolls the car over and and uh, her heart was starting to to go and as the policeman comes to get her from the car he says we're taking you to the hospital and do you know what she said no I'm fine <laughs> where did I get that so my mother started her decline having to go to a living assisted facility and then to the next step and 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 ultimately in that time frame um, into a nursing home, which was the most traumatic experience of my adult life. I had a terrible time with it, very emotional time with it. And, and then Leo's mother in October of that year contracts uh, lung cancer and within a year she dies. So then what do I do? I just hold it all together and I'm still going because that's what we do, right? We just keep going. We just keep doing what we have to do and we keep going. So I decided I need a new job, which is a bigger challenge. And as soon as I'm on that job, one month, my mother dies. This is like in a three-year period. And one morning, I wake up, and the anxiety is flooding over me. I can't get out of bed. Morning after morning, I have to force myself to get out of bed. The anxiety is so huge and so tremendous. And I... I think, what am I going to do? What am I going to do about this? I don't know where to go. I'm just done. I'm just done. And so I decided I needed to go to get some outside help. So I go to this therapist. And, and actually, I was in such bad shape, I couldn't even find his office. I'm in the parking lot. And I'm, I had to call him on my cell phone to say, I don't know how to get in there. I've been around this building three times. And I'm like, this mad woman, you know? And I come in and sit down, and I'm going, and I'm just all over the place, and he looks at me and he says, if you don't shut up, I can't help you. <laughs> so I'm good. And we're talking, and he's saying to me, Mary, Mary, your spirit is dying. You need to re, you need to find your spirit. He said, you're used up. I've been around this building three times, and I'm like, this mad woman, you know? And I come in and sit down, and I'm going, and I'm just all over the place, and he looks at me and he says, if you don't shut up, I can't help you. <laughs> so I did, and we're talking, and he's saying to me, Mary, Mary, your spirit is dying. You need to re, you need to find your spirit. He said, you're used up. And he said to me, I said, well, what do I do? And he said, you need to look back. You need to go back into your childhood. And you know what I said to him? I don't want to go back in that shit. And I looked around to see who said that because I didn't even know that's how I felt about it. This is 20 plus years in Al-Anon and all of a sudden he's saying to me, you got to go back. And I'm saying that because I would have described my childhood as just fine and dandy. My, you know, I told you, we had fun, we drank, blah, 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 blah. And so I said, well, how do I do that? And he said, I don't know, start thinking about it. So I did what I did what I only know how to do. I came home and I read an Al-Anon book, which was Survival to Recovery. And I looked in the book and I said, you know, I identify with every one of those questions. 
about adult children. Every one of them, I said, yes, yes, yes. Do you feel inadequate? Yes. Do you feel good? Yes, yes, yes. Then I read the book. I said, I'm not in here. <laughs> it wasn't like my life. So I went back to him and I said, we started to talk and he said to me, I said, why don't I know this? Why, why, why didn't I know I felt like this? And he said, well, in the fellowships of AA and Al-Anon, they would call it denial. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. You know, here I am 20 years in the program and you're telling me about denial. This time he said, go back to that book. I went back to this book and I did what you tell me to do and you tell everyone to do, I tell people to do when they hear a speaker or they read something, you know what it is? Don't compare, identify. And this time I looked for the feelings. And when I did that, I underlined almost every word in that book. I was in that book. I was all over that book. And so what I began at that time was my second recovery in Al-Anon. And I was able to look at all of what I'd grown up with and the whole syndrome of alcoholism that was probably in my family for who knows how long. And I was able to finally see it. And I cried with him and I, I came to terms with, I didn't think I was a good enough wife. I didn't think I was a good enough mother. I didn't think I'd done this well. I didn't think I'd done that well. And he would look at me and you know what he would say? Can you love yourself, Mary? Can you love yourself? <clears throat> After my time with him and starting to learn to love myself, and I came to term with, terms with many things I'd buried. When I had lost a child during those years, I'd never grieved that child. I was too busy, moving on, moving on, get by it, get by it. I did all my grieving for who knows how long that I'd been carrying that sadness around in me. And I had a wonderful sense of recovery. What I decided to do, because it seemed like a good idea at the time, was I thought we should now move to another house, because it's good when you're in that kind of condition to move to another place and pack up your whole life and move somewhere else. My geographical cure, maybe. And in doing that, I needed to, I, this an unbelievable thing came over me where I had to just kind of divest myself of everything. I was throwing things out. I felt like I just wanted to get rid of it all. Part of it's probably middle age. I don't know. <laughs> but it happened to me. I don't fully understand it. But I threw everything out. I, I took my family up in the attic because, you know, when the boys cleaned their rooms, they would just move it to the attic. It never really went out. And so I've got everybody up there and we're, I'm throwing everything out. I threw out everything I ever owned. I threw out every award, every plaque, every everything. It's out, it's gone. And they're not where I am. So they're saying, you can't throw that out. Leo's, there's a bowling ball Leo's got up there, which he used when he was at the very end of his drinking years. When he used to work the third shift, he'd come home and he would go bowling in the morning so he could drink. Because you know, you can't have to drink when you're bowling, even if it's 8 a.m. That was what he had that bowling ball for, and he hadn't used it in 20 years. And I said, get rid of it. He, he said, you're not throwing out my bowling ball. And I said, yeah, get rid of it. He goes, nope, we're not. It was like, that was the line that was drawn. We're moving okay, but we're taking the bowling ball. So we cart this bowling ball out to this new place where we live. And um, the kids come over one day and they say, let's go bowling. No one said, let's go bowling in 20 years in my house, right? And he looks at me and he says, aha, my bowling ball. So of course he pulls out his bowling ball and put his fingers in and they had gotten a little too fat for the bowling ball. So I said, aha. So, but the bowling ball is kind of like our culminating story. But I, I needed to move, I needed light. I just needed light. I needed to be where light was. I needed to have light pouring in. I needed, I needed to get in touch with, with my God in another way. We moved into this house. I quit every organization I was in, including Al-Anon. I did, the only things I did was go to church, go to my job, and be quiet. And I sat quietly in the light of that house and I allowed myself to heal. And you know, you gave me that. You gave me the right to do what I needed to do for my own sanity and self-preservation. 
And after a couple of years, maybe a year and a half, you know, I always read my literature. I might even speak at something, but I wasn't going to my regular group. I was just, I couldn't. I was just too tired. I could hardly get home and do anything. These little character things, you know, those same defects, wanting to be in control, wanting to take charge, started to pop up again. And I recognized it. I said, you have to get back to the program. And I found my little group, which I now belong to, the Hamburg Courage to Change group. And I'm happy to be in that group. And I feel like my life has settled down. It took almost three years for me to get through that time, that healing time. But at least I didn't rush it this time. At least I didn't try to just keep going. At least I heard the message of the program. To love myself, to care for myself. You know, when I was a, when I was a, a little girl, you had to, um, my mother would iron my father's white shirts. You're all going to not relate to this because you're so damn young. But what, we had ringer washers. My mother still had a ringer washer. And you'd put these shirts through the ringer, and then you'd, you'd put them, you'd dry them out on the line, and you'd bring them in, and then you'd sprinkle them. And then you'd roll them up into these little sausage things. And you'd put them in a wicker basket with a vinyl liner that had either strawberries or cherries on it. And you'd cover them up, and I don't know what the heck they did in there. Told jokes, I don't know. <laughs> and you'd leave them in there till just the right time, and then you'd take them out and you'd iron them. When you took those shirts out, those shirts were so wrinkled, you couldn't believe you could ever, ever get those wrinkles out. And I think my life was like that before this program, like one of those wrinkly shirts. And I was always trying to just use my own power, my own pressure to get the wrinkles out. I came to you and you said, Mary, there's another way. I said, what is it? Take step three. I said, what's that? Buy an iron. <laughs> so I did. I made that contact. I bought the iron. I connected with a God of my understanding. Now I tried it, iron those shirts. It was better. And then you'd say to me, Mary, try step 10. I said, what's that? Plug it in. <laughs> and plug it in every day. Every day, plug yourself into the source of energy and power in your life, and you know, those shirts would just smooth themselves out like nothing you'd ever seen. When I'm not doing that, my life isn't what it is and what it could be. Because what I come to know is a higher power that cares for me, that loves me, that is around me. I don't understand it. I don't care if I ever understand it. I don't care if I put a label on it. It's just this incredible source of energy, power, and grace that makes my life different. And I know when I'm connected to it, everything is better. I envision it like this. I'm in a rowboat on a pond, and I'm rowing and rowing. The God of my understanding is in the back. He's operating the tiller, setting the direction. We're going fine. We're going all around the pond. And then me being me, I say, excuse me, God. Could I take the tiller? And the God of my understanding always says, sure. So I get up, I take the tiller, God takes my place, and we just kind of go in circles. And you know why that is? Because God don't row. <laughs> so if I remember, all I have to do is keep moving, keep rowing, and I let God set that direction for my life, everything goes a lot better. I read something else just recently. I loved it. I lo you know, do you notice how the pages in our, our books change every year? Those daily readers, they put new pages in there. When you're sleeping in the night, somebody puts new pages in there, and you read them, and you go, oh, this, I never read this one before. I've been reading it for 20 years. Look, that's never been there. I read one from, uh, from the Hope for Today, and it's, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Do not go there alone. <laughs> that was me. You know, that was me. Don't go there alone. I can, I'm not going to a meeting. I want to stay home tonight and think. It's like having a meeting with a fool. 
we come together in these rooms and we bring all that we are and all that we were and we're broken and we're hurting and I don't know what happens in these rooms but that power of energy and grace comes to these rooms and we talk to each other and we touch each other and we love each other and we get healed and I am so so grateful for that I'm in a place in my career where I'm going to end it it's a huge life change. I'm retiring at the end of this year. I can't believe it. It's been an enormous decision. And I just decided I want to be doing something else. But, you know, I have to have my plan. So I have learned I don't tell God my plan. I just tell God I need a plan. And uh, I found uh, something I loved as a child that I loved to paint. That was my first my first big gift in the program was a John Nagy Learn to Draw set. And I, I never really had time in my high school life to take art classes because I was always taking college entrance classes, you know. And so I never really did much. I'd go to some little adult class here or there. And when we moved out to this new house, I just happened to be, I was driving around looking for something, some place where I could buy things to put on the walls. And I came into this studio and adults were painting in there. And I said to this woman, well, can anybody come here? And she said, yeah. I said, you don't have to have any training? No. You just come. If you come, you pay. If you don't, you don't. Whatever. I was there the next night. In the last four years, I've been painting. And I found some very special place that's been deep inside of me that I haven't allowed to be out in years. And the day I handed in my letter of resignation to my superintendent, I also sent a photo of one of my works to a show. My friend said, send it. I've never shown my paintings that anywhere. Just my family, they think I'm, they think I'm good because they're required to. <laughs> so I send this in and I'm really sending it on a lark and uh, I send it and I forget about it. And uh, my resignation goes through the board. So now I'm officially doing it. And two days later, I get a letter that my painting has been accepted in a national women's show. And uh, I felt very validated. It was like God said, yes, it's okay. Go in that direction. It's good. Tonight is the reception, the opening reception. I've told every single person I know, if you want to come, come up there to celebrate that with me. And I just think at every stage of our lives, if we stay open to whatever the direction of our higher power is, he's there to guide us. What a message of hope. What a message of hope. Life doesn't end. It just keeps opening up and opening up. If we let it, and if we show up, if we keep coming back, and we work it because we're worth it. I love all of you very much. Thank you.